Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room. Collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com Teams. Introducing Built to Last, a new podcast by American Express. I'm Elaine Welteroth, and I'm excited to host the debut season where we will be deep diving into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Through these important conversations, we'll hear how the Black business leaders of our past have inspired today's Black-owned small businesses and communities. Join us for the debut season of Built to Last on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make in how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app welcome to here we are everybody today is a charity week if you are new to the podcast typically we have scientists on but um uh, starting in the in the second season of the show, I've been trying to about every other month or so have have someone who uh, works for or founded a nonprofit um, organization, someone trying to um, kind of create positive change um, in our lives and on Earth. Um, and this is, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're learning. This is kind of the point of of some of this stuff, knowing, um, knowing all these great insights about ourselves and why some of these problems are the way that they are is, uh, is very nice and everything, but it's also, um, wonderful to see the point of view from people that are actually, um, involved and taking action kind of on the ground floor, trying to, uh, create this change. And I think that this will help give us insights into um, our understanding of life because what's the point of learning all this stuff if it doesn't um, if it doesn't create some sort of positive change in our lives or in the world um, well 
there's a lot of points. It's also very interesting and fun to hear about. But um, but this, I think this makes things a little more meaningful. So uh, enjoy today's charity episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast today. I have a very special guest, uh, actually how I got to um, get introduced to this organization. One of my old high school buddies, Wives, uh, and, and he's also has been a huge supporter of the podcast, uh, Wives told me about this organization that she's been doing work with and, and got me in touch with the founder of an organization called We Are All Criminals. And uh, Emily Baxter is joining me today. Hello, Emily. Hello. Um, so we are all criminals. I got that the name right, correct? And and where where can people find it? You can find more information about the organization and the the project that is also called We Are All Criminals at weareallcriminals dot org. And what is We Are All Criminals? <laughs> Well, I'll I'll start with explaining the project and and really the the explanation of the the organization is simply that it houses the project and will house more projects as we move forward. But the the project itself, known as We Are All Criminals or WAC, uh, looks at those of us who have gotten away with crimes. So, generally speaking, in the U.S., one in four people has a criminal record. But I contend that four in four have a criminal history. Right, we've all committed crimes. Just a fraction of us have been caught. Uh, those criminal records then uh, determine where one can live, where one can work, whether or not they can participate in their children's lives, whether they can vote, uh, travel. Really, criminal records can um, profoundly affect nearly every conceivable aspect of one's life. And yet there are many of us, three quarters of us in the U.S., who have committed crimes that could perpetually punish, uh, but but don't. Yeah, I I fall under both of those categories. I've, <laughs> I've gotten away with uh, a lot of stuff that I probably should have gone to jail for. And then I've also been caught doing a few things as well. So I think I, I fall under... Um, at both it is so so if you go to the website can you explain what what people are seeing sure so i i interview people who've gotten away with crimes right mm-hmm. uh and these are doctors and lawyers and policymakers and police and business owners uh and stand-up comedians with and podcasts sta- <laughs> and stand-up comedians with podcasts and together we look at how their lives would have been different had they been caught. Uh, and then we examine how race and class and era and gender and geography and in some cases luck are, are some of the factors that allowed them to get away with it. And then I juxtapose those stories with stories of former clients of mine. I'm, I'm a former public defender, mm. as well as colleagues and, and family and friends uh, and, and others who have been caught for engaging in very similar activity, but who now in the years and decades after are, are still being punished for that. 
How long were you a public defender for? I was only a public defender for a few years. Mm. Yeah. And then I left that to work in um, policy reform. Ah, uh, there, there was just only so much you could do as a public defender, <laughs> uh, basically, because some of the laws are are broken. Well, I, I mean, I think part of it was this this deep naivete. I thought that I, I was frustrated with my my role in the system. I felt as if even when I was able to secure ostensibly positive um, uh, dispositions for my clients, resolutions in, in cases, I still found that they got kicked out of um, their their housing, that they lost their jobs, that they lost their kids, that they weren't able to travel across the Canadian border to attend a memorial for their dead son. You know, these the 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 criminal records, even when the case was say dismissed or or they were acquitted at trial, nevertheless um, managed to sink its tentacles into into their lives and and didn't let go. And so I thought that I would go into reform. I thought that I will change the law <laughs> and, and thereby change the realities that, that my clients and, and this community that I, I came to care very deeply for uh, faced. So I worked at a nonprofit called the Council on Crime and Justice in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was part of um, the advocacy and public policy department. And we, along with some incredible advocates from across the state, pushed for ban the box. That's removing the initial criminal records inquiry off a job application. So, you know, the box that says, have you ever been convicted of an offense? Check yes or no. Mm. So there is a movement that swept across the nation to remove that box from the initial applications so that people get that chance to sit down across the table from the employer and and essentially, you know, allow the employer to see the humanity behind the application, see the humanity behind that potential record. Um, so we, we banned the box and we expanded expungement law and expungement is, you know, what allows the court to remove um, a criminal record from from public view. And and these two things together, it seems as if they should have changed the the playing field altogether, right? I'm, I'm not no, I'm not so naive as to think that it would have been the silver bullet, but I thought that it would have been a massive game changer. And it's true that in some cases, small cases, they were, and and I do believe that it helped people. But at the end of the day. When you still have this, um, this, this almost unshakable belief, this this um, entrenched paradigm in, in our in our minds that there are good people and there are bad people, right. that there are clean people and there are criminals, right. uh, then it doesn't matter if. You just, it doesn't matter if you find out about the record later and not on the application, you're still going to see that person as once a criminal, always a criminal. Mm -hmm. And so this project, which has now become an organization, this project flips that conversation. This project doesn't talk first and foremost about the, the individuals who were caught, the people who um, have been kind of kept underwater by our policies and broader social stigma. Instead, this policy asks the the general public, the people who are 
in positions of decision-making authority, like those legislators, like those um, cops and prosecutors and judges and and employers to consider their own criminality first Mm. and to understand that what divides, what separates them from the individuals with records is oftentimes uh, just a matter of whether or not they got caught. Hmm. Um, I was curious, has, have you ever read the book, um, the honest truth about dishonesty by chance? Dan Ariely. Uh, he's one of my, um, favorite, uh, scientists and he was one of uh, nice enough to be one of my first guests. He's a bestseller and very busy man at, at Duke. Um, written a lot of very successful books. Well, anyway, he, he's, he basically makes a point through a series of just a million different tests. Like he would get a vending machine and have it, you know, dispense too much change for people or give people free stuff or, or pass out tests to people where people get paid for each correct answer and, and see who would cheat and that sort of thing. And, and basically the gist of the book is that everyone, everyone cheats a little bit often. Give it, you can be primed, um, like, if all the pens go missing at the office, it wasn't one pen stealing mastermind. You know, it was, it was every, everyone took a couple home with them. A collective effort. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but kind of along the same lines, but from a different aspect, another thing that, um, I've, I've heard him and other people talk about is, is that not, not just, is it a problem of, of people who, you know, everyone thinks of themselves as a good person or whatever. And these, these bad people, they're like inhuman or other people are, you know, that that's not them. Not only that, but it's, it's that when people start thinking of themselves as a bad person, then their behavior does change. Then they do start thinking of themselves as more of a criminal. You can, you can prime people enough where I believe Dan Ariely made the case that, that that's why kind of confession works because you're getting this clean slate and there's, there's these various things that we can do to create like kind of a clean slate for people. And then people will behave just like everyone, you know, sure. Cheating a little bit here and there and uh, like everyone else does, but it's, it's more of a problem of once you start thinking of yourself as a bad person, then you will behave that way. Yeah. That that's fascinating. I'm, I am so fascinated by the idea that our brains are elastic and and what something like a publicly accessible criminal record does to that elasticity. Yeah. You know, it it makes it concrete, right? Suddenly you become something that you did, not who you are anymore, right? You become that thief, you become that cheat, you become that drug user or seller, you become the person that people don't trust. You become the boogeyman. And so I, I just I think it's fascinating now in our data age where we don't have a real mechanism for forgetting. We don't have the the true opportunity to be forgiven mm-hmm. in this data age where your criminal record is out there and it's accessible and it's not going away. This is a scarlet letter stamped upon the ether that nothing can scrub clean, right? Right. And so what does that mean when when you're trying to move on in life? You know, I I don't have a publicly accessible criminal record, and so I'm able to mythologize my Lucky. past. Lucky. <laughs> Actually, I might have one, but you're not going to be able to find it. <laughs> it's 
hard to find. <laughs> um, you know, I but I'm able to mythologize my past. I'm I'm able to introduce myself as an attorney or as a fellow rather than a felon, right? right. And and I have that luxury to forget what I've done and and you know, kind of put on my my rose-tinted glasses when I look back at my history. Um, and if I do acknowledge things, then then they're usually in the context of a greater narrative, right? Like juvenile hijinks or, right. you know, bad relationships or learning opportunities. <laughs> right, right. right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I just love learning so much. Right. I've created a lot of opportunities for myself. Um, I, w- I was curious, when you talked about um, banning the box, so this is this is just... So you were able to change the law so that employers aren't able to ask if you have a criminal record? Is that right? Can they, are they still able to retrieve someone's criminal record then? So it's not banning the the inquiry altogether. It's just banning the box. It's that initial question right. on the on the first job application. Right. So if I, you know, you were to interview me for a potential position, it's right now when we're sitting across the table from one another that you could ask me about my record. It's at the point of interview or at the point of a job offer when we would begin that conversation. The point is it's no longer at that initial weeding out. Right, right. Yeah, because it does seem it's the the vagueness of it that seems very unfair. Whereas if it were if it were like if there were boxes like have you ever punched one of your employers? <laughs> like I could understand, oh well, maybe employers should have a right to know if they're going to be punched by someone or or not. Uh, potentially, but to just say, have you ever broken the law or, yeah. you know, gone to jail for anything you know, might not have anything to do with work at all. It's so, yeah. it's such a vague general thing. And Absolutely. Then, and then to think of someone as like a bad person in general. Right. Yeah. There, there are, there are tests, uh, indicia that employers should work through in determining whether, what, what questions to ask that have those kind of closed perimeters so you know exactly the information that you're looking for, right? So if you're going to have somebody who's working the till, you may want to know if they have recent histories of um, theft-related offenses, right? right? Um, So you want to know recency, you want to know relevance, you want to know severity, you want to know if the person has had the opportunity to uh, the opportunity of redemption, right? Has this person worked toward growing up? Right. Um, yeah. If, if maybe they got caught stealing when they were, when they were 16 or 18 or whatever, I guess 18 for a record, but then when they're 60, they're probably going to be okay as a Walmart greeter or, you know, whatever. You're probably not going to have to worry about them as much. Right. I would definitely say that. And I also think that you can, you know, include more people <laughs> than just that extreme. Right. But yeah, absolutely. That I, you have to take, you have to, to take a meaningful look at the, the job at hand, the job that you're hiring for and the offense, right? And then the applicant. And so all of those things. And you know what? It's messy. And it's it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to just deny people, right? Right. The problem is because of the disparate impact that our criminal and juvenile justice systems have on people of color, this is a protected class by and large that you are then denying if you have that policy of weeding people out without any criminal record. You know, you have 
people who are committing the same crimes, but chances are if you are a person of color, if you're Native American, if you're poor, you're more likely to be, be caught for that same offense right. than someone who is white, someone who is middle class or upper middle class. Oh, yeah. So, I've gotten away with stuff that's like, oh, yeah, that's only because I'm white. That's the only reason why I was that cop would let me go for I once drove drunk onto a crime scene. They had like the road blocked off and I didn't realize it. There was two cop cars and I thought they just had a couple people pulled over. And so I was I thought I was just maneuvering around them and instead I drove onto a crime scene. And then they stopped me, and and I was clearly drunk, but they were just like they didn't want to deal with it because they had other things going on, and they let me go. But I imagine uh, a person of color would have probably been tased and then charged for the crime that had happened before I showed up there. Um, that's that's just one of my many examples of of what being white has allowed me to get away with, in my opinion. I feel like I've made things awkward now. You want to no comment on that one? Fair enough. No, could... I was just picturing what this looked like and oh, wondering yeah. what crime it was that you essentially ran over. It was it was a murder. Oh, good lord, man! Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I almost uh, yeah. I drove onto a murder scene. Good. I had I had oh. no I had no idea. I was too drunk to realize yeah. what I was doing. Usually, I try not to react when people disclose <laughs> crimes. There's something particularly egregious about <laughs> right, right, just right. blasting right through that. That's why it's such a fun American. story. But I'm also one, right? I'm also a comedian, so I get to let. It, yeah, you know, none of this stuff affects me anymore. I, I don't, my, whatever criminal behavior I've done, I don't have to apply for jobs or anything like that. So I'm just very fortunate in that regard. I've done way more serious stuff than, than many people with a criminal record, I'm sure. sure. But I'm, all, I'm just in a very fortunate position. Um, sure. But, um, oh, I forget what I was going to say. Before that, um, uh, might need to edit this. Um, oh, I was curious. What? So, so give me an rather than just an outrageous story like that, where it's like, well, no, you should have gone to jail for that, Shane. Um, how, how about some of the stories that struck you? Maybe, maybe especially early on um, that inspired you, or or had you developed this project in the first place, where? where um, you found people that shared some past criminal behavior and found some parallels. Sure, absolutely. Although to, to just cycle back a little bit, I, I wouldn't say that that what you just disclosed is one of the worst things I've ever heard. It's certainly not. Oh, no. Um, it, but, but, <laughs> was just the glee with which you told it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it, no, no, more. it's not that it was like, it wasn't malicious. You know, it was, a pure, <laughs> it was purely an accident. Just the fact that sure. I got away with no, it, I is, get it is so silly. I get it. Um, so one of the the first stories that, that I heard, it was, I believe right around the time there was an a parallel story that was kind of hitting the national airwaves. So I was interviewing this woman who told me about a time when she was just 16. She she described herself as something of a nerd. She used to make her own homemade napalm with some of, some of her nerd friends. And one oh. bored July day, they decided to 
um, whip up this highly flammable viscous gel in an apple cider glass jar, take it out to a state park where they uh-huh. found the ideal small enclosed space upon which they could test their substance, a porta potty. They douse the inside of the toilet with this gel, lit a tennis ball on fire, lobbed it in, and watched it blow. And they then ran back to their cars and drove the speed limit the entire way home, terrified over what had just happened. The day that I interviewed her, she had been keeping a three-month-old heart alive with her index finger. She's a pediatrician. And had she been caught, it would have been arson. It's the destruction of a structure with a homemade explosive. And in many states, that would have been a permanent disqualifier from ever working with vulnerable individuals. So it wouldn't have mattered that she was just a kid when it happened. It wouldn't have mattered that no one got hurt. It wouldn't have mattered that she was terribly sorry for what she had done. All that would have mattered was that the act occurred and she got caught and she would be out. So around the same time, there were there were all these stories hitting the national airwaves about, um, well, there was one in particular about a, a young girl, a teenager in Florida, an African-American teen who was, who decided to test out her chemistry exper- experiment uh, the morning before the project was due. And so she was just mixing these chemicals into, um, you know, two liter soda bottles and it caused a, a small pop, right? So not a massive explosion, just a pop. Uh, the police liaisons were on the scene. She was arrested. She was charged with terroristic threats. She, <laughs> this, by the way, this young girl was an honor student. She was looking forward to going to college someday. She wanted to to go into um, science of some sort. And here, everything was so quickly derailed. Thankfully, this is one example where the internet actually stepped in to help this young girl. Mm-hmm. The you know there were scientists from around the world and certainly across the country who admitted to doing very similar things when they were that age, saying that this experimentation is a part of of the learning experience right. and that she shouldn't be. Um, forever punished because of it. She did end up finishing the year at an alternative high school. Her studies fell behind. She she became depressed. I mean, there, there were all of these other um, side effects to being labeled a criminal, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the good news is, is that she, she was able to graduate high school. She's now going to college. But she is actually an exception when it comes to the kids who are caught most often they are kicked out of school. Most often they they are charged with felony level offenses. And most often their opportunities for for moving forward in life are are forever derailed. Yeah, I used <laughs> when I was in middle school, I, I used to blow up people's mailboxes because I was just a bastard. I don't know I don't know why. Like now I'm like, oh boys will be boys. But uh that's that's like how I justify it to myself. But it was just I was a bit of a pyro. And uh I I just really thought it would be fun to blow up people's mailboxes. I got caught one time. And they could have charged me with all sorts of stuff. And then they just decided not to because my parents talked to the police or whatever. And they, I just had to go and apologize to the people and replace their mailboxes. And it wasn't a big deal. That was also like pre-9-11 and everything else. But, but that is just the kind of, you know, silly, stupid stuff that young, <laughs> like, you know, 
13, 14 year old boys will get themselves into. And it is, it, it is amazing to, I mean, I do think back to like, what if I were a terrorist right now? What if I were, what if on my record, I was actually convicted of a terroristic threat. I would have, I wouldn't be able to travel internationally or, or anything. I, I would, it, I'm sure it would make flying a lot more difficult for my life and, and everything. And, and I wasn't in my mind, I wasn't like trying to commit an act of terrorism or anything like that. I wasn't like going after a government building or whatever it might be. I just was a pyro thought it was cool to watch something explode and, and, um, you know, and I fortunately got away with it, but, uh, it, it's funny to hear someone just working on a chemistry set, which is, Way less, like I was actually intentionally committing vandalism, you know, and I got away with it. And then someone's, some nerds just fiddling around with the chemistry set and, uh, and has to go through all that. Um, I did remember what I was thinking about earlier when you're talking about the hard choice that people need to make where it's easier just to say, oh, this person's a criminal. Let's just not hire them. Um, there's this, there's this wonderful study, uh, kind of regarding um they call it like ego or decision fatigue where where it's it the more decisions you make in a day the harder it, it becomes to make the correct decisions and to, to make the hard decisions it takes a lot of glucose for your prefrontal cortex to inhibit your instincts and blah 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 well they wanted to figure out um why some people why people with similar cases were sometimes getting uh, parole? Are you familiar with this? And when they and when they weren't, and and then they just checked the time of the day. You're familiar with this study? How close it was to lunch? Yeah, how close it was to lunch. So at the beginning of the day, when people had, or right after lunch, when they had a break and they had plenty of energy. So so granting parole for someone takes a lot more cognitive energy because I imagine there's more paperwork and then you have to consider, well, if this one, if this person's convicted of something else, then I let them out and they went and did screwed up again. And it's easier just to keep someone in jail. And I, I believe at the beginning of the day or right after lunch, when they're full of energy, they they granted parole 75 percent of the time. It didn't matter the case. You know, overall, these are large sample size and then throughout the the rest of the day until lunch and then, and then until the end of the work day it just slowly declined down until zero basically so you go in for a parole meeting and whether you get off with parole or not has a lot to do with whether the judge just had a cookie or something. It, it, it's incredible how these little um these little things can influence so many people's lives, but not not just little things. Just the idea of of um, of people not trying to make the little bit of extra effort to make the harder choices. There, there's probably plenty of people with little things on their record that are uh, you know have turned their lives around and are probably harder workers than a lot of other people with no record whatsoever. Um, but I mean, I guess also as an employer, I mean, I get, it, people, people don't know this. They make judgments. It is hard to make those tougher choices. Is, is there, is there anything in place where they're trying to, um, 
kind of coach employers on, on how to deal with these situations better and look at them a little more objectively, do you know? Yeah, there, there are a lot of resources out there. Um, one of the, the most accessed guides is actually from the EEOC. They published in 2012, I believe it was April of 2012, a, a guide on how to use um, criminal records in, and arrests in the criminal record convictions and arrests in the hiring process. And there are loads of advocacy groups, uh, both for-profit and, and non-profit, uh, across the U.S. that are very eager to to educate employers on making good choices. Hmm. Um, what about uh, what are your feelings on on a lot of the the drug convictions? Because to me, it seems like I mean, so I I do I have a show about psychedelics i do psychedelics i've done them for a very long time i've never been caught and to me i think it's utter nonsense that they're illegal in the first place i think all of it should be looked at at least descheduled at at least scientists should be able to study them so we can see if they're actually harmful or not to me they've they've had an amazing positive impact on my life i i feel like i'm taking them as a therapeutic uh, meditative aid, similarly to, um, I, I mean, a lot of people scoff at the idea of, of medical marijuana and I get that uh, a lot of people just go in and say they have anxiety and get their card or whatever, but there are people with glaucoma and whatever else that are helped by this that then have to go and find their medicine illegally. And, and to me, I, I mean, I, I've, I've gotten, you know, mushrooms and then shared them with friends that then gave me, you know, 10 or $20 or whatever for sharing them with. And so we all, all trip together, which is no different than if I were to buy a case of beer and everyone throw in a few dollars, but had something happened or whatever. And I had, I got caught doing that. That's technically I was drug dealing and, and that's a schedule one drug, one of the more illegal drugs on earth, I don't know what the sentence is for them, but it just seems absolutely insane to me that, that your life could be ruined for something that is, uh, I mean, in my mind, it's helping. It might not be for everybody. Then They might be dangerous for some people, but in my mind, they've only helped my life and I'm never going to, I guess I'm an outlaw because I'm not going to stop doing them anytime soon. Um, and it, I, I mean, when you read about stories of, of people spending 10 plus years in jail for for possessing a couple ounces of, of marijuana or whatever, it just seems absolutely insane to me. Do you, I imagine you deal with a lot of stories like that. I would say that probably half, if not more, of the stories that I've collected, the narratives of people who got away with it, um, in one way or another, drugs are, are right. a part <laughs> of it's that a story. It's a huge one. And, and it's also a huge part of our criminal justice system. Right. Um, I would say that the not just I, there, there are plenty of, of people, plenty of scholars uh, who would suggest that the war on drugs has been one of the greatest contributors to our current carceral crisis. It's not the only one. And that's not to say that everybody's in prison or jail or under the thumb of the criminal justice system because of a drug conviction. 
but drug activity is usually wrapped up in there somewhere for, for a good chunk of the population. Um, there's a, a scholar from, where's he from? Um, Paul Butler is his name. And he wrote this brilliant book called Let's Get Free, A Hip-Hop Theory of Justice, and I would highly recommend it. In there, he says that it's time to call the troops home. And he considers the troops then the police and prosecutors. And he says that once we call them home from the war on drugs, we're going to be a much more sane, much more safe, much more equitable country. Um, and and there are others, uh, Dr. Carl Hart, who, who suggests that the, it shouldn't be this binary of either you go to jail or you go to treatment, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody needs jail or treatment. Some people can use them responsibly. Some people can use them uh, in a very healthy manner. It, he says that the, the public response to drug use should be just education. Like if you're going to use heroin, don't drink, right? Right. And, and that's what we should be focusing on. So yes, perhaps prison for some or jail for some or the criminal justice system for some. Yes, perhaps treatment for others. And then for the majority of us that, that can and do use drugs without harming ourselves or others, uh, then those other two options, the punishment or treatment really don't fit. Right. Yeah. It, it I mean, Whatever. I, I, I could talk all day about how silly, it, uh, you know, alcohol gets people in more trouble than anything. And that's legal. But um, but, but more more to the point is, that, I mean, I guess your, your project, we're focused more today on these individual lives that people put in prison. But but if if people that are listening don't care about that, I mean, the amazing amount of resources and taxes that you have to pay to put people in jail for basically nonsense for if they are hurting anyone, which they probably aren't a, a lot of times, then it's just, they're only hurting themselves. Um, for the most part, I imagine there's people, you know, doing meth that end up stealing stuff or whatever sure, it might I be, mean, which I, is a different thing altogether. I think at any given point, there are about 20 million people in the U S who are, are using drugs. Right. right. And so, yes, you're going to have, you know, that that's going to, Fill the spectrum, the continuum of harm and no harm. There are people who are committing um, harm, and then there are those who are not. But if we just have this one-size-fits-all response to drug use, you know, as this is a prisonable offense, uh, then we're, we're, I mean, we're at a crisis point, right? right? You look at how many people we have in cages and how many people who may no longer be locked up, but are permanently locked out of education opportunities, housing opportunities, um, countless life opportunities because they were caught smoking or injecting or snorting or, or in some way ingesting, right. Or possessing, um, that that's, that's something that should cause, <laughs> us all pause. <laughs> right. And even, even, even the most conservative of, of people, I would think that they would want police having their time freed up a bit to try to find murderers and, and, and that sort of, that sort of thing. And I, I don't, the, the privatized prison system too tries to completely insane. The, the idea of people making money off of people in prison. Why in the world would they let them out? And you might as well, I mean, 
if if you were if I were running a privatized prison, it would be great. I I mean, what a great business! You can just get all these people together and just have them basically give classes to one another on how to cook meth. So so that so that once they get out and they can't find a job because of their prison record, they can go out and get themselves in more trouble than they would have before prison and and land themselves back there i mean it's uh it's it's not rehabilitation it doesn't seem like i i don't understand how it rehabilitates anybody i've i've been to jail for like a week or whatever it was nothing at all i didn't really think it was a big deal but it wasn't like i i didn't really see what value it had at all i mean i guess we need punishment and stuff but i didn't I didn't get it. I didn't. I didn't get how you can call it um, rehabilitation. I don't. I don't know how you can use that word to describe a prison. And I think there are plenty of people who wouldn't use that term, right? And who would suggest that that's not the point of our criminal justice system. That it's not about correcting. It's just about punishing. It's just about incapacitating. Um, I, fortunately, that viewpoint is not shared by the majority of people in the U.S., um, but it's still, you know, there are still certainly loud detractors that would suggest that that people behind bars not only shouldn't have classes, say college classes, right, those Pell Grants that allowed people in prison to access college education. That was taken away in the 90s, Um, but shouldn't have visitation, right? And so you have people behind bars whose um, family relationships are completely destroyed when when they're uh, incarcerated. And yet those strong family ties can be one of the greatest determining factors in a reduced recidivism rate, as is education, by the way. <laughs> you know, course. so all of these things that we know uh, can help people get back on their feet or get on their feet for the first time. Um, we have, through this patent lack of empathy and this um, increased commodification uh, of people in cages, uh, we've we've just taken all of this away, right? And so really it's just the brutal warehousing of people for months or years on end. And then we scratch our heads and wonder why it is that our recidivism rates are so high or why people keep going back in. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny that they'll have the businesses set up shop in prisons too, and then have and play, pay people whatever, like pennies on them, pennies, <laughs> fractions per, of pennies on the dollar, uh, yeah, yeah, per hour, what like twenty cents per hour to be working. I mean, it's just such an incredible scam. It's so corrupt. It's so wrong on so many levels. Um, the the last little thing of mine personal uh, that, that I wanted to share was something where I basically did nothing wrong at all and did get caught and could have been charged with something uh, much more serious. I, I once, um, it was like three, four in the morning in Manhattan, which is notoriously hard to find a bathroom. And I had to go very bad and I had some to drink and I stopped off in an alleyway and I took a leak in an alleyway and then there's police that found me and they Gave me a ticket for public urination, which at the time I was like, okay, I'll pay the fine or whatever. And then I, I see, oh, I have to go to court for this. And I lived in Boston at the time. I'm like, I have to go to court for, like, 
can I just pay the stupid fine? And then I realized why I had to go to court was because they could have charged me with being a sex offender, with, it, with indecent exposure. And I could have been a sex offender for life because I had to go to the bathroom. And it wasn't, you know, I went to court and what, it wasn't a big deal. And they did just give me, you know, $75 fine or whatever. But the very idea that they could have, and I don't know if they even have ever, I imagine they have when they've wanted to, especially I imagine if there's some repeat offenders that they just wanted to stick in jail or whatever. But, but <laughs> I mean, it's insane. Now, now when I go to move in somewhere, I have to go to my neighbors and tell them I'm a sex offender because of the time that I took a leak at four in the morning. There's not children around or anything like that. Is so outrageous to me and it's it's just so many of the laws are so broken and it, it's really telling of of uh to me of, of how you can't just say oh this person has a criminal record you really need to find out exactly what they did and a lot of people i mean i'm sure there are criminals that did bad things that would try to marginalize, you know, what they did to and say, well, and have excuses for it and blah, blah, blah. It works both ways. But, um, but I, I just can't believe that I could today, I could have been a convicted sex offender, which again, that's sex offenders are one of the biggest threats in the world. As far as I'm concerned there, they are people that we need to, get rehabilitation for and need to be stopped. And, you know, it's horrible. And things like charging people with it for public urination are, are just undermining um, trying to help the problem completely. Absolutely. Our, our system, as long as it is so diluted, as long as that net is cast so wide, is not going to be effective. We're not going to be safe. And so it, it's not just about... Um, working with people once they've been caught, but like say in your circumstance, why is that law even on the books? How is it that you could even be charged with that, right? So I, I think we need to just overhaul the entire system and not just focus on the the um, out of the trenches, end of the, the battle kind of scenarios like ban the box and expungement and working with employers to hire individuals with criminal records. All of those are very important things. But we also need to look in the, in the middle there when people are incarcerated or on probation or in the trenches while they're um, in court and then take it a step back too and look at our school to prison pipeline, look at our war on drugs and, and cutting that off, cut truly acknowledging and and challenging and changing the racial disparities that exist in in our system. I mean, I think we need to look at what happens to people before they become embroiled in the system, what happens once they're inside, and then what happens after. And this is going to take a nation to do this, right? It's a nation that's done it. <laughs> mm -hmm. There are very few clean hands in this mess. Um, and that is both from a political perspective of, of actual laws and policies that have created this disaster, as well as from a broader social um, uh, problem that we have where we are so, as I said before, just so beholden to this belief that there is the other, right? And that the other is someone that is somehow less worthy, less human, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, so I, I think that unfortunately there isn't a single petition or there isn't a single law. There's not a single petition we can sign or a single law that we can pass or a single box that we can check in order to change this. But each one of us needs to first, I think, acknowledge our own criminality, kind of take ourselves, you know, maybe um, inject a little humility um, and humor perhaps (laughs) into the conversation and, and then reflect that back and acknowledge that other people have made mistakes as well, or have committed offenses that perhaps they're, that are not mistakes. Right. Right. But that, that there's a greater story there. Um, so what, what, um, what are you personally hoping to do like moving forward? Um, do you have like a five year plan for your project? That, that sort of thing. Well, I, I think that for this portion, the luxury to forget portion of, of more than my mom, or I'm sorry, of, of we are all criminals, this is really, the purpose of it is to be a catalyst for conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has been, and, and that's incredible. You know, I've received reports from, from um, employment advocates in Seattle who have used it to help ban the box in um, San Francisco for, for housing purposes in Louisiana, um, uh, regarding, uh, housing and, or I'm sorry, in Louisiana regarding solitary confinement and in New York, um, for increasing education equity, uh, for individuals with criminal records. So I, I think that's a really beautiful thing, but I also think that there's another part of the conversation that, that needs to be had. And, that's the second part of We Are All Criminals called More Than My Mugshot. And there I interview people who do have criminal records, people who have been caught. But my focus isn't on the criminal record or really even on how that record has prevented them from living the life that they would like to. My focus instead is on what that person could bring to the table if they were just allowed in the front door. Mm-hmm. The idea is that we are we as as a country are missing out on some of the you know on, on truly incredible um, untapped potential here because we we lock people out and so this is a, a conversation about ensuring that we we don't um, dismiss people out of hand because they have criminal records and really providing people that platform or that space to reclaim their narrative, to define themselves not as a thief, but as a father or not as, um, a drug user, but as a scholar, right? So what, what are you, what should your records say? What should your, your, um, background say, if not your criminal history, right? Mm -hmm. How do you define yourself and how would you Um, hope that others do too. And so that's the next part of We Are All Criminals. And then after that, the third campaign is looking at children whose um, parents or or caregivers have been incarcerated. I think it's incredibly important to call out the ripple effect that our criminal justice system has had on the next generation and how people are torn apart when someone is taken out of the family and then not allowed back in. Hmm. So if people want to help you and support your cause, what they, what can they do? Well, <laughs> thank you for asking. Uh, they can go to the website at weareallcriminals.org 
And you can contact me there through the site. Um, my name is Emily and my, my email address is on there. I would love to hear of people's stories. I would, I, I travel across the, the U.S. and partner with people who are interested in having these conversations. So if you would like to bring me out to your community, please contact me through there. Um, and certainly if you'd like to support the, the project and the organization so that I can continue to collect these narratives and, and challenge the paradigm that, that exists now, um, then you can do so on the site as well. Wonderful. Emily Baxter, everybody. Uh, make sure and go to uh, We Are All Criminals. Check that out. You can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and there will always be links on there as well and find out more support donate do a good thing i hope uh, i hope i got you guys interested and and um you'll share this with people that you know i hope you'll write in some of your own stories this is something that you can uh take part in and i think that's pretty cool so thank you guys for listening thank you for being curious and thank you emily thank you Thank you all for listening. Now you know a little bit more about me. Um, uh, joining me next week on the program is Colin Holbrook, who is a research scientist at UCLA. I actually haven't done this interview yet, so I can't say for certain what we um, will be talking about. But uh, he he researches decision-making under contexts of, of threat uh, with a particular focus on uh, morality, group prejudice, and... Um, um, parental vigilance so should be a fun one um, they always are so make sure and tune in next week to hear more about that and uh, all of your all of your comments lately have have been really encouraging people really liked the the live podcast that was re- released that was one of the more well-received ones and so it, um that feedback has been great you guys said you want more of those i'm gonna try to make that happen if you have any other suggestions like someone said they wished there was a longer q a and there was time restrictions during that show but perhaps in the future um i'll i'll try to uh uh get it so that there is a bit more time for the Q&A at the end of the live podcast. I had so much fun doing that, so I'm hoping to explore new avenues with this show. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Make sure, if you if you haven't had a chance, to go on to iTunes and review the show. That always helps me out. And uh, tell all your friends. All right, those of you that listened all the way to the end, you're my favorite. Talk to you next week. say uh seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like <laughs> it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld i'd love having you 